Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Now, this message is dealing with the subject of temptation and testing. So a frog went in for a DNA test. And the results came back 99.9% amphibian and a tad Polish. Oh, yeah. I once thought it was funny to take a math test in an elevator. I was wrong on so many levels. <laughs> yeah. None of them are, are falling flat today, boy. A COVID test nurse asked me if I have suddenly had a loss of taste. I said, no, I've dressed like this for quite a while. <laughs> all right, tests. Like, that's the theme through all of them today is a test. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. Jesus is going to be tempted by Satan with lusts of the flesh, lusts of the eyes, and pride of life. But Jesus passed these tests by standing on the written word of God and by resisting the devil. Now let's go ahead and we'll read our passage and then we're going to go back through it verse by verse as we do. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The message is simple today. There's two main parts to the passage. Three, sorry, forgive me. Uh, verses 1 through 2, the Spirit leads Jesus to be tempted. Verses 3 through 10, the enemy tempts Jesus. And then verse 11, the angels minister to Jesus. The Spirit leads Jesus to be tempted. Notice the first word of chapter 4. It says, then. So you're thinking, well, okay, what happened before this? If we're saying, well, then this happened. And this came out of this scene that we remember from last time where Jesus was baptized. You remember John the baptizer out in the Jordan River Valley, eating the locusts and honey, calling people to repentance, to turn from their sin and to turn back from God. And then as he's baptizing all these sinners, here comes a man down the hill, and you might as well think he's just any other sinner. Nobody really knows what's going on. And he identifies with everybody there, and he uh, comes and gets baptized. And John knows who he is. And as John lifts him up out of the water, a voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And what a spiritual high time that must have been from, for Jesus, right? He would pretty much lived 30 years in obscurity, and then he comes and identifies with his people, and his ministry has begun, right? And now, then, right after that, spiritual high time, then he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. I want you to take special notice of who is doing the leading, right? You see that? Jesus was led by who? The Spirit, God is leading, God the Spirit is leading God the Son, right? This is God's doing. And he leads them out into the wilderness. And so I've given you a picture here, a little bit of uh, the Judean wilderness. So the Jordan River Valley, it was lush, green, you know, down by a river. You would, uh, you know, understand what that looks like. Mason City, we're in a river valley, sort of. Um, 
This is the Judean wilderness, harsh wilderness, right? Freezing at night, blistering heat during the day, a barren wasteland, no food, no water. Why would God lead his son into this place? Well, it says there, to be tempted by the devil. God the Holy Spirit leading God the Son into the wilderness for a time of testing. The word tempted there, uh, it means in the Greek, it comes from a root word that means to experience a trial. It means to try to prove, either in a good or bad sense, it means to tempt or to test by soliciting to sin. Most of the Greek scholars that I read say that it would be better off to think of this as testing, Jesus being tested in the wilderness, because um, that word could be translated either way. And so notice that he's leading him to be tested or tempted by the devil. Now, although God is leading this with his son, God is never the source of temptation, Right? James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he uh, himself tempt anybody. You know, so like if you're dealing with some temptation in your life, right? Say that you're dating somebody and you're dealing with the temptation not to, uh, you know, do things that you shouldn't be doing with them. Uh, you can't say God is tempting me, right? Now, you may be in a situation that you're being tested, but God isn't the source of that temptation. The temptation is your own flesh and your own desires. And then the devil is right there next to you, whispering into your ear, go ahead and do it. You know, it doesn't matter, you know. That's how this sort of works here. But God is not the source of the temptation. But God did lead his son into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted. You see this in the book of Job, too, that... God does use satanic tempting to serve his purposes. God does allow you to get tempted and tested by Satan for his purposes. Kind of shed some light on spiritual attack uh, if you think through the implications of that. When the devil's besting with me, I no longer say, oh, make it stop. I, I often say, now, God, why are you allowing this to happen? You know, what is it in my life that you're trying to make me aware of why, why this is happening? Now, why would God the Father do this with Jesus? So, it's not to help him spiritually mature, right? Because we know Jesus without sin. It's not to help him spiritually mature. He was tested to identify with sinners. He was tested to identify with sinners, also, through this time of testing, you know, he emerges victorious, demonstrating his holy, sinless nature. But he's tested, he's going through this time of temptation to identify with you and with me, because we go through such things. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, the author talks about this. Hebrews chapter two, uh, chapter 2, verse 18 says this, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted, Right? Isn't that great to know that your high priest, your king, your leader, your Messiah, your Jesus, he can help you when you're tempted because he's been tempted, right? Isn't it always fun when you're, you know, maybe not fun, but isn't it always a little comforting when you're going through something and then you talk to somebody that's been through something similar? Isn't that a little different than talking to somebody that's never been through what you're going through? But Jesus Christ has been through what we go through. In fact, it talks about that again in another place in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. says this, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but was also in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ has been tempted, tested, and tried just as we are. You know, the Bible talks about how Jesus is fully God and fully man. So, this will stretch your brain a little bit. In the, in the aspect that he's fully God, he can't sin, right? But in the aspect that he's fully man, he can experience temptation and he can suffer. And he dealt with hunger. He dealt with, um, you know, different types of pain, different types of suffering. So he's fully God and he's fully man. He's both at the same time. 
Like the author of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with us in our weaknesses. That's comforting to me because when I talk to Jesus about my problems, whatever they are, when I, when I pray and I talk to God about my problems, I, I know that he understands, right? And I get that feeling from him even. I even get that sense from him. Most importantly, I, I get the truth of the word that tells me that he can relate with me, right? Now, temptations are part of the Christian life. So also in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 17 Temptations are part of, you know, a life, you know, as being God's people. Hebrews eleven seventeen says this, By faith Abraham was tested when he offered up Isaac. Now, you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? Um, you know, Abraham has a son eventually late in life, and then God says, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to go offer him as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice. And Abraham says, um, you know, I'll go ahead and, and I'll do this. And um, he leads Isaac up onto the mountain, and Isaac says to him, one of, my, one of the most terrifying verses in the Bible to me, it's just, he says, he says Father, he says, uh, you know, behold the wood for the offering, but where's the lamb, right? Like, can you imagine? And, um, you know, Abraham said something interesting. He says, God will provide himself a sacrifice. So interesting, all the way back in the Old Testament, right? But the book of Hebrews tells us that he knows that if he was to sacrifice his son, that even God would just raise him from the dead because God's promise that the Messiah would come through Isaac is going to come true because he trusts God's word that much. And so what was happening was Abraham was being tested, right? Abraham was being tested. It's part of the Christian life that your faith is tested. Have you ever heard the statement that says a faith that can't be tested can't be what? Trusted. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3 says that, My brethren, brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, right? You're going to get tested as a Christian. I think it's really interesting, too, that right out of this spiritual high time that Jesus was at, like spiritual high time, I mean, the voice of God comes and says, you know, this is my son, right? And right then, a time of testing, Right? You ever notice that, that sometimes the highest spiritual times in your life, it's like those are the times where you need to be careful because the devil is waiting, like he's waiting to sift you around right in those times, right? It's very, I found it's been very helpful in my case because it keeps me from getting a big head, you know, like God sure knows how to knock my legs out from underneath me when uh, it's time for that. He probably does that to you too. Now, Verse 2, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. So the Spirit led Jesus into a time of fasting, into this harsh wilderness. Fasting, abstaining from food, it's a powerful spiritual discipline. Essentially, it's, you know, it's me telling my body that my body's not going to have control over me, that the Spirit's going to have control. Like, I'm going to put God first and my body, um, you know, flesh impulses are going to come second. And so it's a really helpful spiritual discipline. And uh, the body says it wants food, but the spirit says, nope, I'm not going to feed you, right? And it's, it's really interesting. If you've never uh, fasted, you know, like the Bible doesn't command it, but the Bible kind of assumes that we do it. Um, Jesus says, when you fast, don't disfigure your face like the hypocrites, but put oil and make sure nobody knows you're fasting. But uh, so on, the Bible assumes we're going to fast. So Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I don't know, um, that's a long time. Um, no water out there, too. It doesn't say whether he had no water. Um, but we assume this is like a supernatural thing, like God's sustaining him. Science tells us that after about 40 days, the body starts eating itself. So when you fast, um, actually a few days into it, you're not hungry anymore. Um, if any of you have fasted, you know that the hunger impulse goes away. I think your body gets sick of, you know, saying, hey, I'm hungry, and it's, you know, it's not going to get anywhere. But it comes back the hunger impulse. And when it comes back, that's like a bad sign that you're going to start, you know, the organs are going to start getting eaten and you're dying at that point. And so Jesus had been fasting 40 days. Now, Matthew's primarily Jewish audience would have recognized this number 40. Uh, they would have associated it with Old Testament events from their history. Moses fasted for 40 days when he received the law on Mount Sinai, right? He had been 40 days without food and water, it says in that um, instance. Supernatural, God sustaining him. Um, there was a time where Elijah fasted for 40 days, talks about in the Kings. Um, Israel was also tested for periods of time relating to the number 40, right? 
Um, Noah and the flood, number 40. Um, Israel in the wilderness. The number of 40 in the Bible is usually associated with uh, testing or completion of a thing. So Matthew's audience would have recognized that, which you probably did today. You're here in 40 years and you're like, wait a minute, there's, there are 40 days. There's all these other places of 40 in the Bible. Now, <clears throat> this time where Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years, who's read the book of Numbers? You read that? Right. That's the time where Israel's being tested in the wilderness. They're in captivity in Egypt in the Exodus. Exodus begins with them coming out of Egypt. Then they're supposed to go into the promised land, um, and it's like a 14-day journey to get there, but it ends up taking 40 years because they wander around in the wilderness, and God doesn't lead them in there because of their unbelief. And that's this time of testing. Out in the desert, they failed the test. In fact, Deuteronomy 8.2 says this, You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, Israel failed that test miserably. Who knows like what they did in the book of Numbers? What's one of the key words in the book of Numbers? Anybody? Yell it out. Complain. Complain. Grumbling, right. They grumbled and complained. Uh, it was like, well, you, Moses, you brought us out here in the desert to kill us, man. Where's the water? We don't have any water. Oh, we don't have food and all oh, this food that God's providing. We don't want that. We want something else. We want to go back into captivity where there were onions and spices and leeks and garlic and all that stuff. And it reminds us of us. Sometimes we say, oh, this walking with Jesus stuff. I want to go backwards and do, you know, it was so fun in that life that I had before. Like, are you sure? Are you sure you're not just looking at it with rose colored glasses? But if that, you know, that's what they were doing is they were complaining about the Lord. And so the Lord said, you know, you failed the test. You failed the test because you didn't take my provision and just be thankful. Instead, what you did was you complained because the lusts of your flesh were getting the better of you. But see where Israel failed in this 40-day period that Jesus is fasting, he succeeds. You see the difference? Now, Jesus passed the test that Israel failed. So God allows you and he leads you into times of testing allowing the enemy to tempt you, and he does it to prove to us what we are made of. Now, the test is not to ruin you, right? God doesn't do these tests and, or allow you to be tested in these ways to ruin you. What he does is he allows the test to prove to you what you're made of. You're not proving to him what you're made of. He already knows what you're made of. He knows everything about you better than you know anything about you. But he allows you to be tested and tempted to sin to, for you to understand what's in you right? It reminds me of a time when I was young, testing, right? My grandpa, he, I used to live on a farm, and uh, I miss the farm. It was beautiful. Uh, we had pigs and beans and corn and garden, and uh, also my grandfather helped me build a half pipe. Now, who knows what a half pipe is? Anybody? Yeah. All right. It's a skateboard ramp that goes like this. It's like a half a pipe. That's why they call it a half pipe. And, um, you know, uh, I designed it from images that I'd seen in Skateboard Magazine, right? And uh, we worked hard on that ramp that summer. One time I remember I was, you know, during the project, I was sawing with a circular saw, and I was a kid, right? And, and I'm taking the circular saw, and I'm down like this, and, and all of a sudden, you know, like the saw quits, and I, I sawed through the cord underneath, because the cord was underneath the board. Oh my gosh, it was a fun time. But finally... <laughs> My grandpa, like, tapes the cord back up. He still had that saw for years with the tape, all, the big ball of tape on it. Like, I don't think that's safe, grandpa. Uh, <laughs> it got finished eventually, right? Then came the time to test it. And so we have to see if it's going to hold up under the pressure, right? And so I get to the top of the thing, and I'm a kid. I don't know anything about, you know, I watch skate videos, you know. And uh, so I dropped in on the thing. Bam! And straight through the bottom of the plywood, because we only put plywood on it. You're supposed to put masonite on it and like layers of it. We put one layer of like quarter inch plywood on it. And I go all the way through the ramp and I just, bam, like, I don't want the ramp anymore, Grandpa. You know, like, uh, man. So then we ended up turning it into uh, a stage for my band that I was in. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, it didn't hold up under the pressure, right? But when the test was applied to it, we saw what it was made of. And that's exactly what God does with you, right? He allows you to get tested so you'll see what you're made of, right? And so you'll call out to him for strength and reinforcement, and you'll, you'll call out to him to grow. 
And that's what tests are like. And, and God tested his son. God l- led his son out into the wilderness to get tested. Now, the enemy tempts Jesus. He's going to tempt him in three different ways. And these are incredibly clever and skillful. And I would encourage you after this message today, throughout this week, to kind of go meditate on these and to think about these and ask the Lord to reveal you to you uh, more about these because we could talk at length about them more than we have time for. Temptation number one, verse three through four. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Notice, first of all, now when the tempter came to him. It wasn't now if the tempter always comes, right? Satan always comes. It's not a mystery. He will test you. He will test your faith. He will test your proclamation of faith, always. Now, when the tempter came to him, and something we have to point out here also is that Jesus had been fasting 40 days. So we think we're on the 41st day right here. The enemy knows how to take advantage of your physical weakness. Has anybody ever experienced that? Like, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes we think the enemy plays by like, like, like there's an HR department. You know what I mean? That he follows the guidelines, you know, or something. But the enemy doesn't care if you're sick. The enemy doesn't care what's going on in your marriage. In fact, he's going to wait for all of these things to flare up to try to destroy you at your most vulnerable point. And you have to figure that out. Um, some people um, don't know when to take a break and rest and they work themselves into physical weariness and then they get bombed on by the devil. They haven't figured out that the enemy takes advantage of physical weakness and sickness. And he does this. He knows the exact time uh, to get at you. And he waited that whole time. Imagine that too. You know, you're fasting for 40 days and you must be feeling so like, I'm so connected with the Lord. God's going to bless my efforts in fasting and all this stuff. And, and bam, right at the end of it, you know, when you're about to die, that's when the tempter comes. And I want you to notice that he, uh, the tempter himself is messing with Jesus. This is Satan himself. When Satan messes with you, it's likely not Satan. It's likely demonic forces in this world. The Bible says that Satan is essentially like, a, like the CEO, if you will, of like demonic forces, fallen angels. Um, but here we have the tempter messing with Jesus Christ. And he says, if you're the son of God. Now, this isn't a question uh, he isn't questioning whether Jesus is the Son of God. He knows Jesus is the Son of God. It would be a more clear translation would be since you are the Son of God. You know, it's kind of like saying if it's raining outside, take your umbrella. You're not questioning whether it's raining outside. You're saying since it's raining outside, take your umbrella. He's saying since you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. Now, The temptation here is to use divine power for Jesus to feed himself, to violate the Father's plan, and to wrongfully use his divine power to satisfy his hunger. This is an appeal to the lusts of the flesh, to the desires of the flesh. Now, no doubt Jesus could have fed himself at any time during this 40-day fast. We read in another occasion Jesus took uh, loaves and fishes and multiplied them. It's no doubt that Christ could have Um, fed himself in exactly this way if he would have wanted to. This first temptation, what Satan is getting at here is he's tempting Jesus to distrust his father's love and providence. You know, you're the son of God out here and you're struggling and you're hungry like this. Just command these rocks just to become bread and just feed yourself. I mean, it would make sense. You're the son of God, right? But that's not the plan. The plan is that Jesus is being tempted and tested, right? And so if Jesus would have used his divine authority to feed his spiritual needs, he would have been putting the plan of the Father aside in order to put his physical needs first. And I believe Satan tempts us to do that very same thing, doesn't he? He attempts us to take our physical needs and to put them above our spiritual responsibilities and our spiritual needs, right? Often Satan tempts us to say, you know, the physical needs are more important than the spiritual. That spiritual stuff's fine. If I have time for God, that's fine. But I've got to do things like I've got to put food on the table, right? God comes second, you know, because this is the real world, right? You've heard stuff like this? But he answered back to him. And he said, it's written. 
Now, Jesus replies with scripture. He says, it is written. He doesn't pronounce a new word, a new prophecy. He doesn't rebuke him. What he does is the same thing that you and I can do, and he pulls out scripture that is already written. I believe Jesus is doing this because he's showing you something that you can do as well. And what he does is he goes and he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And it says, uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This verse in Deuteronomy is so fitting for this situation. I don't know. Uh, By the way, when was the last time you just had verses from Deuteronomy on deck, you know, just to quote off the top of your head to, you know what I mean, to defeat the attacks of the enemy? Uh, Jesus knew the word inside and out, right? Now, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 says this. I want to give you the context of it so you can see why Jesus' uh, reply to the enemy is so fitting here. Deuteronomy 8, 3 says, uh, So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now, the context from Deuteronomy 8, 3 is God telling his people Israel that he allowed them to go hungry in the wilderness so that he could feed them with manna, which was like a bread-like substance, that God was going to provide for them. The context of Deuteronomy 8.3 was saying, I let you go hungry so I could teach you that I love you and care about you and that I will provide for you in my way and in my timing, right? And that's so skillful that Jesus brings that up here because that's exactly what Uh, Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to do exactly what Israel did. See, Israel complained about God. They complained about the things that he provided because they didn't trust in his timing and in his ways and in his love and in his care. And so Satan comes to Jesus and he tries to get him to do the exact same thing. And he does that same thing to us, right? And so the next time that you're tempted to put money and food and material sort of things above Jesus and you start to feel that temptation, you reply to the enemy and you say, you know what? Uh, Man shall not live by money alone or bread alone or anything physical alone, but he lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. My spiritual life is more important than my physical life. And the devil's constantly trying to get me to confuse that. And he's doing it to you too. Temptation one, doubt God's goodness, ability, willingness to provide what you need. His way, his timing. Satan wants us to take matters into our own hands and to stop trusting God's providence. Now, I want to make a comment before we go to the next temptation. Sometimes I hear people joking about this. I hear him say stuff like, Oh, you know, I always just take matters into my own hands and put God in the back seat. And they, they say, have you ever heard that? People say it like it's flippant, you know, like, oh, it says, I'm always trying to be God in my life. And he always, you know, I always take matters into my own hands and, and I don't wait on his timing. And, and they act like that's not a huge sin. It's a huge sin. In fact, it kept Israel from going into the promised land. So it's not a laughing and joking matter that I take things into my own hands and take them out of God's hands. That's not a small thing, Right. <laughs> Now, Satan knows how to appeal to the lusts of our flesh to get us to distrust God. Now, it's very much like what he did to Eve in the garden, right? Oh, God said you can't eat that tree? Well, you know, and she looked at it and she said, you know, it's good for food. I am hungry. Hmm, you know. And then so what Satan's implying is God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to eat that tree because it's so good, so good for you, right? Very same temptation, just packaged a little differently. And it comes to you every day, too. There's always the temptation to put your spiritual life second, below the needs of your flesh. Second temptation, verse 5. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, that's Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Here is a picture of likely what we're talking about, bad picture, I'm sorry. Um, Right here is the temple complex that Herod built in Jerusalem. Okay, from here, this is the southwest corner. From here to here, uh, Josephus tells us, the Jewish historian says it's about a 450-foot drop, right? And so Satan took him here, and he says, why don't you jump down? Now, the, the city of Jerusalem is right here. It's right there. So everybody would see that. It would be an absolute spectacle. That's the temptation. The enemy takes him up there, why don't you jump off here? And uh, if you do, 
no big deal because, you know, you're the son of God. And he'll send angels and they'll just keep you before you would even dash your foot on a stone. Not a big deal at all. Now, this is a subtle temptation right here. Um, on the surface, it seems like the temptation is just trying to do something stupid to force the hand of God in your life, you know? Uh, it's kind of like somebody saying, well, I'm diabetic, but I'm not going to take my insulin because Jesus will save me. It's like, dude, Jesus probably gave you the insulin, you know? I mean, if you think it through, you know, uh, that's what it looks like on the surface. Let's look at it closer. The temptation here seems to be a subtle allusion to a prophecy regarding the Messiah in the book of Malachi. Let me read it to you. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says this, Behold, I will send my messenger. This is God speaking. Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, the illusion is here is the Messiah has prophesied he will come and just appear at his temple. That'll happen, right? Now, this prophecy had led to a common belief among the Jews that the Messiah would suddenly appear in the sky coming down to his temple. That's what the Jews believed at this time. And so Satan is cleverly saying the Messiah is supposed to come to the temple, Right? Well, nobody really knows you're the Messiah yet. So, but I know a way that he could get, that you could get everybody to know you're the Messiah. Jump off the uh, corner of it. Angels will come and sweep you up, you know, sweep you up and you won't even get hurt. And then everybody will know, right? Now, this is a subtle test of the, of pride right here, right? He's testing his pride. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you in their hands. They shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, it's interesting here. Satan comes back with scripture. Did you know that the devil can quote scripture to you better than you can quote scripture to him probably? Now, he comes back here with Psalm 91 verses 11 through 12, but he skillfully leaves out a part of it. He skillfully leaves out like kind of the meaning of the whole verse, right? Let me read Psalm 91 verses 11 to 12. It says, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, isn't that clever? He left out the statement to keep you in all your ways. Okay, so if I was really concerned that everybody was going to know that I was the Messiah, and yeah, they hadn't really taken notice yet, and you know what? I could jump off this corner, and I could force the hand of God, and he would do all this. Um, because yeah, Satan, you're right. The Bible does say that God won't even let me dash my... But wait a minute, you missed something. To keep you in all your ways. Not to keep you in some stupid attempt, you know, to gain attention. Um, what that verse in Psalm 91 is about is saying, God, it's a general promise that as you seek the will of God, he will protect you. But if you seek some stupid way to go force his hand to get recognition for yourself or something like that, the Bible doesn't say God's going to protect you doing anything like that. But see how clever Satan was. He appealed to Jesus' pride, right? And he, you know, he started to get him going on that whole thought about, you know, I am the Messiah and I am going to come to Jerusalem and everybody is going to recognize me. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a good idea. And, and furthermore, the Bible says I should go ahead and do it, you know, because it says it's not a big deal. But, you know, Satan didn't get over on Jesus. This is an appeal to the pride of life. He's trying to get Jesus to act presumptuously. Jesus said to him, it's written again. Back to scripture, he takes him. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. In other words, it's sinful to test God by trying to force his hand when you are out of his will. Right? You're out of the will of the Lord. And then you do something and say, you know what? God will take care of me. No, that's not, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say that God's going to bless your life if you're out of his will. It doesn't say that anywhere, right? And it's to act foolishly and presumptuously to go and try to force his hand. And that's what Jesus, that's what he's trying to tempt Jesus to do. And he's trying to get him to do it by appealing to his pride. Jesus quotes uh, Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. Now, what does that mean? Let's look at the context. The context of the quote again, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy in Moses' farewell address to the nation of Israel. It is a warning to them not to fall back into their typical sin of trying the patience of God and doubting his providence and care. 
Jesus says you shouldn't tempt the Lord your God or don't put him to the test. This verse recalls their experience at Massa. Now, does anybody remember what happened there? It's in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 2 through 7. Um, if you've read through your Bible, you remember, this is one of my favorite parts of Exodus, um, by the way. Um, well, I like Exodus a lot. Anyway, um, what was going on there in, uh, in the book of Exodus at Massa? The people were testing the Lord, essentially threatening to stone Moses to death because they had no water, right? They didn't trust God, and they were being demanding. Now, essentially what they're saying is, we're his people, and you brought us out in the wilderness uh, to kill us, apparently. We don't have any water, so I'll tell you what, we're his people. We're going to stone Moses to death. And Jesus sees this as the same sort of thing, trying to force the hand of God, right? Uh, his people in the wilderness were trying to force his hand. God was trying to teach them, I know when you need water. I'll give it to you, right? But don't presume, just because you know that you're my people, that you can go do something like, uh, you know, for, to force my hand. And that's what he's trying to, um, I'm gonna, we're going to stone Moses to death. So now God has to intervene. And you remember the whole thing leads to God, or Moses striking the rock and the water comes out of the rock. The temptation is pride. I know I'm God's people, so it doesn't matter if I try to force his hand. Hey, I'll stone his leader to death if it means that we'll get some water, right? You can't force the hand of the Lord. And sometimes you get peaked, you know, your pride gets peaked. You start to think things like God owes you something because you're his people or, you know, or, or, you know something like that. Something gets up in your pride. So temptation two, since you're the Messiah and the people expect you to come in the air and jump off the temple or come to the temple, just jump off here. Uh, give them what they're expecting. And after all, you are the Messiah and God will send angels to protect you, right? The temptation is to the pride of life. Go ahead, get validated in front of these people. After all, you're the Messiah. But Jesus was wise to his trick. Satan was not able to tempt Jesus' pride to get him to sin by attempting to force his hand to protect him. The pride of life. You remember in the Garden of Eden when Eve was being tempted? You know, she saw that the tree was good, lust of the flesh. It was good for food. So her stomach was talking to her, and then she put her stomach above the will of God. Now, she also noticed that the tree was good to make one wise. Is it a good thing as God's people that you're wise? Yeah, he wants you to be wise. But do you do it by being disobedient and eating the tree he tells you not to? No. See what I mean? It's the same sort of temptation. Yeah, God wants him to you know, be known as the Messiah, but not this way, right? Last temptation. Here the enemy tries to persuade Jesus to worship him for some quick temporal gain. He offers a shortcut to what is coming anyway. He offers a way for Jesus to bypass the cross. Now, verse 8, Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. It must have been some sort of vision um, that Satan did. Um, gave him some sort of vision. He saw all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I'll give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. Now, when he says, All these that I will give to you, Notice that Jesus doesn't dispute that. He doesn't say, you can't give me all the nations of the world. Jesus doesn't say that. Why? Because the Bible says that Satan gained control of this world when Adam and Eve forfeited control to him. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve forfeited their control over the planet when they allowed sin. A man forfeited his dominion. And uh, now Satan is the ruler of this world. In fact, in three places in John's gospel, it says he's the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says uh, he is the ruler of this age. 1 John five nineteen says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. This is his world for a time being, at least in some sense. And he says, I'll give you all of this. I'll give you the worship of all these nations if you will fall down and worship me. He's not very subtle anymore, is he? Isn't that just like the devil? He shows up subtle. He shows up maybe less, you know, less subtle. And then eventually he's just like not so subtle anymore. You guys ever noticed that? It seems to happen. Not very subtle. Now, this is the very same thing that got Satan kicked out of heaven, his desire to be in the place of God. And he's still doing that. He's still wanting people to give the worship to him that only God uh, is worthy of. He offers Jesus what Adam and Eve forfeited to him, rule of all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, think about it. 
does Jesus have this coming to him anyway? What's your Bible say? Does your Bible say that eventually Jesus is going to rule and reign uh, the whole universe, that he's going to rule from Jerusalem? I think your Bible says this. Mine says it. So this is all coming to him anyway, right? This is written. It's prophecy. It's going to happen. But how does it come? Jesus is on a mission. And that mission involves him going to the cross. When he goes to the cross, he defeats the enemy, defeats sin, defeats darkness. He defeats the power of the enemy for eternity at the cross. But see, Satan here is saying, look, I'll give you all this. And in fact, it'll be easier because you won't have to do that whole cross thing. Now, that'd be a pretty strong temptation, wouldn't it? Tell you what. You can have all the kingdoms of the world. I don't care. Just worship me. You just, you just fall down and give allegiance to the dark side, and I'll give you all this stuff temporarily that's here, right? And you won't even have to go and deal with that horrific cross. That'd be a real temptation, wouldn't it? He's offering Jesus a shortcut. But you can only have the glory through the suffering. That's one thing that a lot of people have not figured out about the Christian life is that glory and the good things come through suffering, comes through dying to self. Jesus says, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. And a lot of us as Christians, we think, well, I become a Christian, so it's just all about glory. No, glory comes through going to the cross, from dying to yourself and putting Jesus first in your life. And that, I do well at that for like 10 minutes, and then myself wants to get back in the way again, and I have to keep reminding myself, I have to keep you know, dying to self over and over again, and keep taking my wants, hopes, dreams, and desires, and putting those aside, and putting Jesus first in my life. And that's how glory comes, right? That's how the glory comes. It comes through the life of the cross. Christians are called to the life of the cross, not the life of glory without the cross. And that's the problem, by the way, with um, a lot of what passes for Christianity today is like nobody wants to hear that message, so they leave that part out. They say, just come to Jesus and get blessed. Well, how do you get the blessing? You get the blessing through the cross, through self-denial, where Jesus says if anybody seeks to gain his life, anybody seeks to find his life, he'll lose his life. But if anybody loses his life for my sake, for the gospel's sake, he'll find his life, right? Jesus says that the way up essentially is down in the kingdom, that the way to live is to come to the place of self-death. That's what Christ is all about. That's what the message of the gospel is about. Is denying yourself, putting him first. And that's what Satan's tempting Jesus with. He's saying, look, you can have all the glory, all the glory. If that's what Jesus was after, was just the glory of worship, I want all these people to worship me, you know, it'd be pretty tempting. But Jesus knew he had a mission, and he knew that the glory came through the cross. First Peter 5.10 says, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you after you have suffered a while, right? Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord God, and him only you shall serve. Jesus is not a fallen human that will sell out for ease and comfort rather than taking God's way. Um, he didn't sell out for the right price, right? He, there wasn't a price high enough to get him to sell out on his mission. And we're grateful for that today. If Jesus would have biffed it in any of these temptations, he wouldn't have been qualified to save you. And this whole thing would be nothing. This would amount to nothing. Uh, we would be here for no reason. Look what he says, for it's written. Every time he takes him to scripture, doesn't he? You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. He paraphrases two verses in Deuteronomy. These verses, again, are dealing with Israel's wilderness wandering experience. Temptation three, turn to the dark side to escape suffering and pain involved with God's will for your life. Now, you, you might be able to relate a little more with this temptation, right? This was an appeal to the lust of the eyes. You see all these kingdoms? I'll give you everything uh, that your eye sees here. If you'll just take a shortcut and worship me, that's what the devil says. Now, we're constantly being tempted with taking the easy way out, uh, way out and to skip over God's way, aren't we? Think about this. Your eyes, lust of the eyes... Maybe you see relationships. You're single and you're lonely and you say, oh, 
I see these other relationships. It looks like those people are so happy. I want that. And the devil says, you see that? I'll give you all that stuff if you'll take the dark side. If you'll, if you'll take a sinful path to get it, I'll give it to you. No problem. That, he, doesn't he offer that to everybody? And then he's very crafty. He starts to say, well, you know, I could date that girl. Yeah, she's not a Christian, but, um, you know, I could probably get her to go to church. And, you know, you start doing this stuff and you start falling for it. And because your eyes see a relationship, that's a good thing. Maybe God wants to have you to have that. But there's no shortcut to it. If you're going to have a godly relationship, you'll do it by allowing God to bring that person to your life. And you'll do it in a godly way. You won't be, you know, doing things you shouldn't be before marriage and all that stuff, right? But the devil comes and says, if you'll just take the dark side, I'll give it to you. How about this one? How about your desire for comfort and inner peace? Hey, don't go God's way of letting him work on your character and letting him build trust. Just go to drugs and alcohol, you know? You can get comfort and inner peace right now. No problem. Take the shortcut. And the devil does that all the time with people. You know, does God want you to have comfort and inner peace? Does he want your anxiety to go away? Yeah, he wants all that stuff to happen, but he wants to do it his way. You know, don't take the shortcut and go the devil's way. How about another one? What about security and stability? Is that a good thing? Good, right? Well, skip God's way and be dishonest and steal at your job. You know, well, I got to make sure that everything's good and I've got enough to fall back on. So, you know, I won't mind fudging the numbers here a little bit. I won't mind, you know, stepping on people to get where I'm going because it's all in the name of me getting security for my family. I got to get a retirement together. You know, I got to be thinking about this family of mine. Oh, yeah? Well, the devil's coming and he offers people all the time. Take the dark side. How about this one? What about your sense of significance? You want that. It's a good thing to feel significant. Well, you can skip over God's way and you can become codependent people pleaser, right? That's a big thing. I just do everything for everybody all the time and, uh, you know, now I'm significant. Well, God's way of being significant is uh, studying the word, trusting what God says about you and who you are and believing that and developing character around his word, not trying to get a false sense of significance by essentially manipulating people, Right? How about this one? Your sense of feeling beautiful. Oh, skip it. Skip God's way. Uh, you know, believe what the Bible says about you. You're fearfully, wonderfully made and beauty's internal and not external. Skip God's way. Just become bulimic or something, right? You see how the devil does this with people all the time? He's often giving the shortcut, right? People do that all the time. You want respect? Yeah, that's a good thing, right? Uh, well, skip God's way of being a servant and being humble just be forceful. Be a dictator. People will respect you if they fear you, right? I've read books in the business world about that, how to make people fear you. Like, really? <laughs> That's not good advice, you know? It clashes with what Christian, you know what I mean? I'm just giving examples of how the devil comes to you in your life, and he tries to offer you the shortcut. Maybe that's how you get duped over and over again. Is something good that God's actually going to do in your life, but you keep trying to take the shortcut. You keep taking devil's way out all the time. You're not holding in there. You're not, you're not holding on long enough for God to do it in his timing and his way, you know? And you're probably getting sick of that by now because that's not rewarding. It doesn't feel good, you know? It feels like repeating. It's Groundhog Day. You're doing the same thing over and over again, right? God wants to free you from that. You got to recognize that it's the devil that's saying, take the shortcut, you know? And answer back to him with scripture, like Jesus did. You shall worship the Lord your God alone. You're not going to worship the God of alcohol. You're not going to worship the God of sex. You're not going to worship the God of power and money and beauty. No, you're going to worship the Lord your God and him alone, right? That's what Jesus came back with. And look what happens, verse 11. And the devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to him, likely feeding him, caring for him, bringing some DoorDash. Oh my gosh, he was just eating after that 40 days. He probably had to break his fast with orange juice. I've heard that's good to do rather than hard food. I don't know. Maybe he didn't read that same website as me. But the devil leaves him. But in the Gospel of Luke, it says that he left him until when? An opportune time. So, just because you pass the season of testing, it doesn't mean the devil's done with you. And welcome to reality. So long as you're in this body, it's going to happen over and over and over again. You're going to be tested and tempted and tried until you get out of this body. And that's one of the reasons we look forward to his return. We're like, good Lord, I can't wait to get out of this body, this body of death, this body that makes me think that a cheeseburger is more important than anything else in life at times, you know? I mean, man. Psalm 91 was fulfilled here correctly, wasn't it? God will provide. God will take care of him, but he'll do it. Uh, if you want to do it in a godly way, then you trust in his timing and the way that he does it. And that's what happened here. The angels came and ministered 
to Jesus. Thank God he passed these tests. Now, in conclusion here, I'll make a few points of application and then we'll sing a couple songs. Overcoming temptation. Jesus did not use divine power in this passage, did he? He didn't. But what he did was he referred to the scriptures and he relied on, he stood on the scriptures and he relied on the power of the Holy Spirit upon his life. And that is the same thing. And I believe that's why he did it is because it's the same thing that any of us can do, right? Now, first of all, first of all, as a a Christian, you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, right? If you are here today and you're not sure if you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, you need to pray to God and say, fill me up with your spirit. Come upon my life and give me power to live for you. Because if you're trying to do it in your own strength, you're going to fail all the time. But if you say, God, I need your power. I need your power to live in and through me. And I do that daily. I go to the Lord daily. That's like every one of my prayers is, thank you, Lord, for what you've done. And fill me with the Holy Spirit because I need it. And I, I pray for my wife a few times a day. Lord, bless Aaron. Fill her with the Holy Spirit. There's nothing more important um, in your, you know, your practical daily walk. Aside from being saved, you know, that's right up there. You need to be filled with the Spirit. You just ask him. It's that simple. doesn't mean the hair is going to stand up on your arms and you're going to speak with tongues. Maybe you will. I don't know. It doesn't mean you're going to do cartwheels. It's not always an experience. Um, but it's a reality. And you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit just like you receive salvation by faith. And so if I ask the Lord right now, I say, Lord, fill me with your spirit, baptize me with your spirit, come upon me. And I believe in faith that he will because he wants to, because he loves me. He will. And you trust in that. You trust in the calling and the anointing and the power over your life. And you believe in it. I can't tell you how many times this comes in handy. I'm trying to serve God, do the things that, that, I'm, you know, that he's called me to do. And I'll be saying something like, oh, I'm stressing out, Lord. I can't do it. And he's like, why are you stressing out, Adam? I told you you can't do it. Ask me to help you to do it. Oh, why did I forget that? I mean, I just preached a message about it. And then like later this week, I'll forget about it. But I don't know, right? <laughs> That's how we do it. So first of all, you've got to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You can ask him now, even during this time. Maybe during the time where we're singing after this. You have to know your enemy and his tactics. Satan is a tempter. He cannot make you sin. A lot of people say, well, Satan made me do it. Satan did not make you do it. He cannot make you do it. He's a defeated foe at the cross. He was defeated. He still hangs around. He hasn't got the picture yet. He still messes with God's people. But he can only tempt you. He cannot make you sin. Right? In theory... A Christian never has to sin again. Now, I, I don't turn the heresy hunters on me. I'm not saying that it's possible that a person could never sin again. I'm saying, in theory, sin is a choice. But we choose it because our flesh is weak. But don't forget the fact that it's a choice, right? We choose to do it because we're weak. But all the devil can do is tempt you. Right? So when you're being tempted to sin and you get this voice in your head that starts really intelligently explaining the reasons why it's okay to sin, most likely that's the devil or your own wicked flesh. See, your, your wicked flesh and the devil have the same game, talking you in to indulging yourself. Now, the devil is very crafty, and he can make it even seem like what you're doing is good, you know? Anybody ever sinned when you knew it was wrong, but after a whole season of Satan just getting at you and getting at you, eventually you thought it was good? Anybody ever been through that? Oh my gosh, it's deceptive. You feel gross. You feel like you want to take a bath. You need a Holy Spirit bath after that. Ugh. All he can do is tempt you, and he appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When we place our physical needs before our spiritual needs, we sin. When we act presumptuously to force the hand of God, we sin. When we take the devil's shortcut instead of God's way of the cross, we sin. And the devil is constantly trying to get you to do these things. No. So you got to know your enemy and his tactics. Now, there are other ones, fear and all kinds of stuff we're not talking about in this passage. We're just looking at this passage. Next one, no scripture and stand on it. I just have to point out again that in this time of testing, Jesus just like fired off like three, four verses from Deuteronomy. Like, 
when was the last time you were able to do that? You know what I mean? And like, they fit the situation exactly. And Jesus, you know, rather than getting all messed up in his feelings and emotions and his pride in his flesh, right? I don't know if he had pride, uh, you know. He, he was a fully man and fully God. I don't know if he had sinful pride. But anyway, rather than giving in to these attempts, Jesus just went to the written word, the unchangeable word of God, and he said, no, Satan, this is written, right? Now, Christians today fall because they don't know the word, right? This is a huge, huge problem in the body of Christ. Anemic, uh, uh, not fed, people not being fed, Going and hearing, uh, you know, a pep talk rather than getting into the Bible. And I'm not trying to blow our own horn. Oh, Calvary, we teach the Bible and all that. God help us not to ever be like that. But it's true, though. Christians need to know the word of God because when the enemy comes and tries to tempt you, you just don't stand a chance if you don't know what God says. Would you have been able to pick up on Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12, that Satan left that out? Would you have been able to pick that up in that... You've been fasting 40 days. <laughs> you're about ready to croak. You're in the wilderness. And Satan comes and rattles off this verse, but you're, you're smart enough to know that he left a part out of it. Know the scripture and stand on it. Use it. It's a powerful weapon. I'll tell you what. I'll be honest and transparent with you guys. I like to do that. Maybe sometimes to a fault, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm trying to... Man, I'm trying to switch my eating habits around because... Man, I put on the 15 pounds during the COVID. I put on the COVID-19, man, or whatever. That's what the good, that's a good excuse, right? And, you know, I get tempted to eat, and I'm around some junk food at my house, you know, and I'm, it's, I, you know, I don't know. I don't like it. It's demonic um, in a sense because it's this stuff happening all over. I'll just be real transparent with you. And I'll tell you what, recently, just even this last week, I've used this, you know, Last night, even, I want to make the ramen noodles. It's like 2 in the morning. I read the label. 21 grams of carbohydrate. Are you kidding me? That's a load of carbs before you go to bed. You peak your insulin levels. You go to sleep. You wake up. You don't get, you don't, you're not going to lose any weight like this. Those pants that you have, in the, you're not going to be able to fit into those anymore. You're going to have to give them away at the mission to the mission, and I'm not going not gonna to do it. Get behind me, Satan. Man does not live by ramens alone. It works. I'm telling you, it works. The Word of God is living and active. And if you believe that and you stand on that, you have victory. That's the key. you got to know that Word, and you have to speak that Word out. You have to say, get behind me, Satan. Man does not live by indulging his flesh. That's not what life is all about. Man, what a trick, you know? What a trick. Oh, this package of five cent whatever they are, is gonna, what's it going to provide? I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to go, I got to go talk to the church about being victorious over temptation. Are you kidding me? I don't care. I want ramen noodles. <laughs> what a joke. Isn't it weird how the flesh and the devil, it seems so real when you're in it. It's an illusion. All he wants to do is he just comes to kill and rob and destroy. That's what he comes to do. So many people are looking at themselves in the mirror destroyed because they're like, I can't get off this flesh cycle of, you know, feeding my flesh, you know. Oh my gosh, it's sickening what he does to us. But you speak back to him. Man does not live by bread alone, by, by every word that comes out of the Lord's mouth. And that is far more important. His kingdom is far more important than my temporal satisfaction, right? Now the last thing. You have to know that the enemy can be resisted. It says in the book of James that if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Now, he won't do it forever. He'll come back with uh, Temptation 2.0. And he will have a, he'll study you, and he'll find out how you are, and he'll come back with a tweaked version of it. That may work a little better if you're not on guard, right? But you have to know that he can be resisted, Right? Some of you may be here today, God help us, that you've just given up even trying to resist, you know? You've just go with the flow when it comes to the enemy's suggestions in your life. But you don't have to do that. He can be resisted. So know he can be resisted and then resist him. 
Now, in conclusion, I want to tell you that um, it's important to understand that this is not a simply a try-harder message, okay? I want to take great care here to not confuse you. The Christian gospel is not try-harder, 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 right? Oh, my gosh, the pastor talked today about, you know, food, and I struggle with this, so I got to go out of here, and I got to try even harder. I got to, you know what, I'm going to make God happy by trying harder. And that's, I hope you're not hearing that. This isn't a try-harder message. Jesus was not simply a good example. He is, but it's more than that, okay? We must understand that, in a sense, Jesus passed all these tests for us, right? Jesus never failed in anything that he did. He never fails. We are frail and weak, and we fail all the time. But because of our faith in him, because we believe in him and trust in him, every victory that he ever had in his life is applied to your account. That's what it means when it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what that means. Every victory Jesus ever had, every single one, is applied to your account through faith. I have a botched account, <laughs> but God doesn't see that. God doesn't see the times that I did eat the ramen noodles. He doesn't, you know, and I failed. And it, was, it might not be sin for you, sin for me, side note, because I don't want to. Uh, but God doesn't see your failures. He sees Jesus' victory. Isn't that cool? When Jesus passed these tests in the desert, I'm thinking, yeah, Jesus, man, you did it because I couldn't have done it. But he did it, and he did it in your place. He did it in my place. Now, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it's a two-part thing, right? I trust Jesus Christ for my salvation. Two things happen. All of my sin Every sin that I've ever committed in my life, past, present, and future, is taken back 2,000-some years ago and applied to the cross. And all of that is wiped clean because of the shed blood on the cross. Part one. So now I'm, I'm not in the hole anymore in my bank account. I'm back up to neutral. I've never sinned. But part two of the gospel is also as I place my faith in Jesus Christ, not only am I brought back up to zero, I'm forgiven of all my sin, all the negatives taken care of, something positive happens. All of the victory of Jesus Christ, all of the obedience, all of the perfectly doing the will of his Father, all of that is applied to my account. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. By faith, you can be forgiven, but it's not just that. It's not just being forgiven. It's also being declared righteous. God sees me just as if I've never sinned and just as if I've always obeyed. That's a beautiful truth here today. You might be stuck on your failure, but God isn't. You might look in the mirror and see somebody that messes up. God doesn't. God sees the righteousness of his son when he looks at you. You can't improve upon that. You can't get better than that. All of my desire to do better is not to try to improve my relationship with God. It can't get any better. My relationship with, with God cannot get any better because it's based on Jesus. It's not based on me. That frees me up to want to do better. Because I know when I fail, it doesn't, it doesn't botch that relationship. That relationship that I have with him is, is as strong as Jesus Christ himself. It's based on him. The voice in your head might be constantly rehearsing how you've fallen short and the past mistakes you've made and, and how you fall short and all these things. I don't have victory over my flesh. Listen, stop that because God doesn't look at you like that. God looks at you as forgiven, as righteous. Now, by his grace, by his Holy Spirit, I pray that he would cement that in your heart. And I pray as the enemy comes this week and he tries to tempt you and he tries to mess with you, that you bring that up to him. You know what? God sees me as perfectly righteous, just as if I've never sinned, just as if I was obeyed. He sees me in the righteousness of Christ. This isn't a simply a try-harder message. This is a, oh my goodness, I love Jesus message. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word here today, and we thank you for the righteousness of Christ that you bestow 
to us through faith. I pray, Father, for anybody here that doesn't understand the gospel or hadn't understood this part of the gospel today, that your Holy Spirit minister to them now, Lord, um, and show them what it means to be declared righteous, uh, that you see us you see us as you see your son. You don't see all my guilt and shame and failure, but you see Jesus when you look at me. I pray that you help us all to understand this better. I pray if anybody's never given their life here today to you, Lord, um, that you would invite them now, that you would show them that your arms are open wide, that there is grace here, and that they can simply, by admitting their sin, admitting their need for you, and confessing that you are Lord, that you came in the flesh as Jesus Christ. You died on the cross. You were buried. You resurrected three days later, and you did this for us. You did this to forgive us of our sins and to give us your righteousness. If they believe that, if they'll confess that today, I pray that you would bring home anybody, Lord, that hasn't given their heart to you today. We thank you, Father, for that invitation that is based on your grace and that is received by faith. Father, thank you, Lord, that your spirit moves us to see ourselves as you see us, to let go of the guilt and the shame and the constant measuring stick and falling short. But we're able just to enjoy that perfect standing that we have in you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.